Hi, we're Eliza, Allison, and Carlin, and we're the hosts of Resolved Mysteries Podcast. Our podcast follows the 80s and 90s television show Unsolved Mysteries, hosted by Robert Stack. If you like true crime stuff, ghost stuff, alien stuff, this is your podcast. We do in-depth research on all of the segments that Unsolved Mysteries aired and give you the latest updates on every case. Resolved Mysteries Podcast is available wherever you get your favorite pods. Join us and perhaps you may be able to help solve a mystery. is a Horrible Histories, Terrible Mysteries podcast. The past, and sometimes the present, are often a bleak place. Listener discretion is advised. If you're a fan of disturbing interests, please like and subscribe. And for the love of God, tell a friend about us. Pretend you're a Mormon. Go door to door with the good news of disturbing interests. Preach our gospel, brothers and sisters, and non-gender binary siblings, to the world at large. Because remember, with us, you might be disturbed. But you're not alone. Welcome back to Disturbing Interest, everyone. I am Regina King, your evilest queen, and sitting in her own lovely house is my ever-beautiful partner. Hi, I'm Lynn, your docent of darkness. How you doing? I'm doing good. I mean, you know, like 2021 good, not like good, but you know, what passes for good now. Cool. You know, cool. Yeah. I am not. Oh, <laughs> great. That's, that's bad. No, I'm all right. I'm, I'm happy. I have a place to live, but guys, guys, I'm in the hood. <laughs> you live in a neighborhood that is known around Seattle as, and I'm not making this up, Rat City. Yeah, yeah. Within the first two weeks of living here, a pop-up rave set up next door one weekend. <laughs> a wow. motorcycle rally set up a couple blocks away. Nice. The next day. Nice. We have heard gunfire. Yeah, yes, yes, you have. I have yeah. had to call the cops on a uh, fist fight in the courtyard of my apartment complex. But it has a pool. Did you find a dead body floating in the pool? I haven't yet? even been able to access the fucking pool <laughs> because the people are never there to let us in. Oh, God. I'm, I'm sorry. Our neighbors fight so frequently and like throwing shit at each other that there are random condiment bottles broken on the sidewalk from a couple getting mad and physically assaulting the other by chucking a ketchup bottle at the other one. Oh, Lord. Well, you have a whole year to find a new place in a slightly less demilitarized zone kind of area. Oh, I'm sure we will move before a year is up. I, I just keep on thinking to myself, do I really want to unpack? Because I'm just going to have to pack again. Oh, and I'm then, sorry. Oh, God, me too. But And then I find myself like in the middle of some arts and crafts project because I have ADD from hell these days. I don't know what the hell is going on with me because I'm unpacking. And I find this beautiful paper parasol that I have with skulls and roses all over it because I'm that creepy chick and I like fung glows. And I find this raven lantern that I have. You've seen it, you know. And I decide, ooh, I have vaulted ceilings here. It's not like I ever leave my house because who the fuck would in this neighborhood? Maybe I'll make like this cool light, like statue art fixture out of it and so today I went out and got a bunch of fucking shit and bats and like tool and I'm making this crazy chandelier thing <laughs> I'm losing my mind in Rat City man hey you might live in Rat City but at least Michael's still exists so you know oh man I'm I'm sorry it's um yeah wow uh yeah huh. I, I'm never <laughs> gonna complain about my neighborhood again I mean the only thing I can complain about with my neighborhood Ironically, you live in Rat City, but I live in the land of dead rats dying all over my house and basement. Not my pets. 
Uh, yeah, but that's true. There's constant construction because everybody wants to live in the not rat city end of Seattle. So in addition to like at all hours during the day, um, they're kicking up all these rats as they're digging and moving shit and everybody's poisoning them and yep. they come to my yard to fucking die. You know, and that's that's if you like rats, you're sad. And if you like any other kind of animals, you're sad because you're like, oh, shit, you know, wildlife's going to eat these and also die. So, you know, I go around and I'm like the rat coroner, just like crime, rat crime scene cleanup. <laughs> scooping these poor dying bastards out of my yard and, and I don't even bury them. You know, I wrap them carefully in plastic and put them in the bin because something digs them up and eats them they're gonna die too so oh yeah it's everywhere is gross but at least i mean i just have dead rats you, you have raves and condiment bombs and <laughs> i don't know what the fuck is going on around oh. here but like i can't do not right before we started i was listening to my neighbors across the other building yelling at each oh, other God. thinking to myself this is how a bitch dies, isn't it? And then oh. I think, well, I'm on the third floor, so most likely <laughs> if gunfire happens, I'll be above it. <laughs> oh, God. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah. It kind of, it's a little end timesy out there, isn't it? It really is, because all I could picture is you dressed in a hazmat suit picking up those dead rats, and I'm thinking to myself, we are in the fuckiest timeline. Oh, it's it's extra, extra stupid, and I believe the current plan for dealing with the pandemic is go die in what manner seems best to you. <laughs> that is, that's the government plan. Just whatever, motherfucker. Take a vaccine. Don't take a vaccine. I don't care. I believe that is the plan. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm never leaving my house again. Just never. Not going to happen. You know what is really good? Hard shift is the new season of American Horror Story. I have not been watching, but I understand you're quite excited about it. Oh my God, guys. We are so on trend. It is taking place. Guess where it's taking place? In a Yeti lair? No, but I like it. Provincetown. Nice. It's taking place in fucking Provincetown. They call it P-Town. Well, of course, because it's Ryan Murphy and it's Gary. So, yes, of course. Yes. It's really good, though. It has to do with, like, vampire zombie creatures. Anyway, it's really good. It's, like, first season level good. Nice. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe I will check it out. I'm em- embracing what we do in the shadows. I'm so happy that oh my God, yes. the Guillermo show is back on. So I'm quite pleased about that. And I have to say, I'm really enjoying, and this makes me feel like a dork, but I really kind of dig Only Murders in the Building. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yes. That is such a funny show. And I I feel seen. Podcast skewering. Oh, my God. I just watch it because I love how much of the piss they take from podcasters. Oh, totally. Like, yeah. I mean, you got to have a big appetite for, like old white guys <laughs> and Steve Martin and Martin sure you gotta you gotta be o- on board with that I was unaware that uh, Selena Gomez was delightful I, I I had no opinion of Selena Gomez as I am an old so she did not really <laughs> register at all in my my old person life you know I was jitterbugging to Benny Goodman um and you know all of that but uh well she was Disney channeling She's a delight. She is quite delightful is. in that show. She's very funny. And um yeah. It's it's light. It's very it's it's my idea of light entertainment, even though there's murder. Uh it's pretty chill murder. I I don't know. It's a show my mom and I can both enjoy together. Yeah. It's yeah, it's weird. But it's I if you're looking for something that's still a little dark but mostly kind of confectionary, but you know, it has some real interesting moments about loneliness mm-hmm. and you know isolation it's uh it's worth your it was worth your time if you have the hulu oh absolutely yeah. absolutely i definitely recommend that one too so fun stuff oh and Mil- miracle workers did you catch the last season of miracle workers i did oh not but I, I understand it involves daniel radcliffe in drag yes, yes. I, I saw that clip and i was like Nani? Yes. That was a Nani moment. It was I, delightful. I did not know that I needed that in my life, but apparently 
Dan Radcliffe doing She'll Be Coming Round the Mountain in drag in Old Westy times. Yep. Yeah, that's, that is what I needed. He is also a delightful person. So I, he seems like a wonderful individual, like outside of his roles too. So two thumbs up for Dan Rad. Whenever I think of Daniel Radcliffe, I think of a shot that was done by, I think, Vogue of he and the other two uh, leads in the Harry Potter cast. And, um, you know, they both, the other two looked very suave and chic and it was gorgeous. And then in Dan Radcliffe's shot, he picked up this burning like branch and just started screaming with it. And that's the shot that Vogue went with is him just holding this branch screaming like a crazy person. And it was, uh, he's, he's willing to take risks for his art, including apparently singeing himself. So yeah, go Dan Rad. Go. We're fans. We're fans. Anyway. So, um, what else have you been up to? Uh, mostly researching this, and I found a story. So I'm going to talk about one of the most insane, intense kidnappings ever to happen in the United States. Uh, but before I get into that kidnapping, I was I happened to be in the car, and NPR was on like the news quiz because I'm 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 an old and I listen to that. <laughs> um, and it, it's the funny one, like the wait wait don't tell me one. And I just caught like the end of this brief discussion because they do like weird shit that's in the news sometimes Mm -hmm. and I was like it was like that records the needle scratch like what the fuck and I had to come home and look it up this is this is beautiful I want to just I need to share this story of frozen brain kidnapping with you I'm sorry what (laughs) frozen brain kid brain kidnapping brain napping brain napping is this about the woman who got a divorce and yes I'm here for it. Tell me more. Okay, so there's not a ton to tell. So what had happened was this Russian woman, Valerie Udalova, 61. So that that gave me some hope that I still have I have decades of fuckery left ahead of me. Um, but oh, are she, you kidding me? We are going to be these annoying old ladies that keep on getting arrested for like pulling people's pants up or some, some shit. So oh, I, yeah. I intend to go full Jessica Fletcher and move to, you know, a quiet town somewhere where the murder rate is higher than that of like New Orleans. So yeah, Apparently that's my plan. province town province is where town. we need to go. <laughs> go to province town and solve some fucking gay murders. Let's do it. Uh, but so what had happened was this Russian lady, Valeria Udalova, has been accused by her ex-husband after they've been going through this very contentious divorce, uh, Danila Medvedev, who's 41. So she got 20 years on her, so get it, cougar. (laughs) So she, basically, they're breaking up. They're deciding, you know, he's taking the business. She thinks she's, you know, owed some because she feels like she's, you know, been bringing a lot to the table. So she uh, apparently cuts through this metal wall in the storage facility of their... As you do. Yes, of their cryogenic preservation company and snatches a bunch of tanks full of nitrogen-preserved, frozen, dead, rich people who have entrusted for many tens of thousands of dollars the care of their cadavers to this company, Creorus, to ensure that at some point in the future they could theoretically be revived. So she takes these tanks full of, cor- of corpsicles. holds them hostage? Like, where is the profit yeah. here? Yeah. Like, why is, I'm, I'm going to take these dead people to even out our debt that I feel like you owe me? Like, how does that pay off? frozen hostages i mean maybe she's like it's a bargaining chip she also and this is the this is the phrase that i read in the newsweek article i went with newsweek i didn't go like daily mail or the sun or i tried to go with sort of a vaguely reputable journalistic source she grabbed a bunch of detached human brains in metal medical boxes so like futurama jars basically oh. 
I have so many questions. Uh, yeah. I have so many questions. Well, you'll be pleased to know if you're all very concerned here that the the brain nappers, if you will, were apprehended. Oh, thank and, God. Yeah, and the bodies and the brains were returned to the Creo Rus storage facility where they were hooked back up and hopefully didn't thaw, thaw out like so much hamburger. Uh, and they can continue their quest to eventually star in a live-action episode of Futurama sometime in, like, 27,000. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, God, I just have so many questions. Like, I, I do, too. I feel like that episode of South Park, you know, with the underpants gnomes, where yeah. it's, like, underpants something profit. I feel like she was, like, brain something profit. Well, I think she was going to try to, like, start her own cryogenically preserving place and also maybe, like, shake down the families of the people, people's corpses, corpsicles, and brains that she had absconded with for more money. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't. If I ever go so crazy that I'm stealing rich people's brains. <laughs> That's the future. Me. That's the future of America. Just rich people brain stealing. This is what you get with all this income inequality. You get brain nappers. God, please don't tell me that the future is rich people brain currency. because It is. I mean, that, that's that's the next Elon Musk thing. Not, not crypto, not Dogecoin, none of that. No. He's going to go straight for rich people brains. You just pay in like amygdalas. But how it works. I don't make the rules. Oh my god. Hello, Neko. Our pup I, I cat heard is a little here. cat in the back. Yeah. Meow. Little cat action. She is right here. She uh loves being an only cat again. She's like, Yes, that little shit is gone. It's my time. How how is our little neurotic buddy Rocky dealing with his new digs? Um he does not like it either. Oh, buddy. Aww. He's very confused about walking oh, around an apartment complex instead of a park. He's very Bud. confused about how small the house is now compared Aww. to how it was. He's very confused about all of the boxes and why one couch is not in the living room because it's so small. Oh, bud. Yeah, but oh. I mean, at least I get to work from home still, so... That's good. Yeah, he hangs out with me all day, and so does Neko, and she is just thrilled as as can be. Although there's this neighbor cat named oh, no. Bear, and Bear comes up on the roof and looks in the window and oh, mocks them. No. And on occasion will come down to our balcony and sit directly outside of the sliding door and just look at them and mock them. Them. <laughs> just be a creeper oh yeah and they will both of them will just lose their fucking minds neko's growling and hissing and rocky's just growling and barking it's ridiculous i love bear bear gives no fucks <laughs> i'm like you want to borrow minky she'd go over there and slap the shit out of him nope i love bear <laughs> bear amuses the shit out of me i i relate to bear just like yeah bear <laughs> he, he can throw a rave next door and you're okay with that. A yeah, cat if rave. If it's a big chunky cat rave, I'm here for it. <laughs> anyway, so what's the story you're telling us today? Well, let me crack into my, I got a really dodgy beverage because I'm going to need it. I it's This one is more of a cocktail in a can. Uh, it's painted donkey ranch water. Uh, uh, uh. Now, I know. Nothing in that sounds good. <laughs> Like, nothing in that sounds like something you should put near an orifice of any kind. Donkey ranch water. So, actual ranch water is not bad. It's basically like a, it's like a tequila highball. It's basically fizzy water, a little little lime, and some tequila. It's not sweet. It's, you know, pretty low-key. Although, again, it's tequila, so it'll kick your ass. But uh, I've never had it from a can. Oh, it's gluten-free, so that's something, I guess. And it is, uh, it's the tequila's made in, in Jalisco, Mexico. So that's, that's good too. So I'm going to, I'm going to just crack this bad boy open. Try me some ranch water. I initially got worried because of that ranch water, like, like ranch dressing. No, that's, that's not what this is. Although to be very honest, I would totally drink it if it was ranch dressing water, just because I'm a bad person, but let's give this a try. Oh, you know, it smells fine. Doesn't smell like you'll die. Oh, okay. that's good. 
oh, that's weird. <laughs> that does not does taste, it taste like, like a donkey. <laughs> well, like ranch water is not usually sweet. This is a little bit yeah. sweet, so I'm. It doesn't even taste like. I don't know what it tastes like. It, it tastes like mystery. It tastes like burnt sugar. So I don't know if they put like a bunch of agave syrup. I don't. I don't know. I mean, it's not. It's not like sweet, sweet. It just. It's not bad, but it's not good. I yeah. It's not encouraging me to to drink more. Other On than, a side note. I have heard the most god-awful thing in flavor existence that I've been waiting to tell you about that oh, maybe no. you can pair with one of your uh, oh, God. horrible wines one day. What What is it? Aldi, the grocery store, oh, yes. is making uh, daiquiri-flavored cheeses. I'm sorry, pardon me? Daiquiri-flavored cheeses. Yes, like a pina colada-flavored cheese. Cheese, like a... Cheese. Cheese. Che no, no. <laughs> That's not, I don't, I deny the existence. Aldi, go home, you're drunk. That's, yep. don't, don't do that to cheese. Leave cheese, what did cheese ever do to you? Leave cheese alone! <laughs> yeah, it's, don't do that. I don't want that. Oh, God. Well, if that doesn't make you ill enough, my story is going to make everybody feel a little bit like, oh, God, as I'm telling it to them. So let's just, let's just bust into this bad boy. I mean, Okay, so my story today is frankly so nuts that it sounds like terrible fiction. Just terrible fiction. But I assure you that everything I'm going to tell you absolutely 100% happened. It happened. And it is genuinely one of the more just kind of upsetting events that I've reported on in the course of doing this. Especially if you are one of those people that just puts yourself in the position of like the victim in a story. It, it will distress yeah. you and i also want to put out there at the start nobody dies in this story at all nobody is even like badly physically injured uh there is They're a just whole... mentally injured holy shit there is a whole lot of emotional trauma in this story that has reverberated across not just the community in which it occurred and the people that it happened to but it upset the entire nation and yeah. and the world at large and i i think that it had certainly a lot to do with how protective people can get of their kids it's one of those things that just made you as a parent be like you're not going outside so yeah, yeah. and i'm going to tell you all about the 1976 chow chilla school bus kidnapping so right off the bat, if you are freaked out by the idea of being trapped underground in the dark, this is not going to be a fun listen for you. This is going to give you the willies. Uh, if you're a parent or somebody who gets really upset at the idea of children being kidnapped, traumatized, also you're going to be like, son of a bitch, this whole episode. So I'm just letting you know that. I mean, honest to God, this is going to horrify you if you're just like a relatively like baseline decent human being who doesn't think a whole bus full of kids and their quietly heroic bus driver needs to be traumatized for life by a small gang of the shittiest, stupidest criminals ever to hatch a cockamamie idea to extort money for literally the dumbest reason I have ever come across. Mm -hmm. And you all know I have read and watched and shared with you some real dumb criminal shit over the mm -hmm. last couple of years that we've been doing this podcast. This kind of takes the cake. This oh, is does. like, what the fuck? And seriously, like, the motive behind this, boom, my head, boom, explode. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. Crime first, motive after. Uh, so so I just have to interject real quick. This, this case, I wouldn't be able to listen to it if I didn't already know about it. So, guys, it's that's creepy. how bad it is. <laughs> and again, the kids, the kids get out alive. The kids are okay. But it's it's some fucked up shit. It's shit that will stick with them forever. Yeah. Yeah. Please um, continue. So, okay. So the date is July 15th, 1976. The place, Chowchilla, California, a small farming town in the Central Valley. And it's about 4 p.m. on a Thursday, and bus driver Ed Ray is driving a group of 26 school kids, ranging in age from about 5 to 14, home from a summer school excursion to the Chowchilla Fairgrounds swimming pool. Suddenly, a white van pulls over and blocks the road in front of the bus, 
Nothing it, good ever starts with a white van. I'm yeah. just putting that down here. Please I continue. Mean, <laughs> yeah, I just a van pulls over. Know that bad shit is about to to pop off. Mm-hmm. So this van pulls over and it blocks the road in front of the school bus. Ed Ray stops the bus and he gets out to see what's going on. And three armed men with stockings pulled over their faces step out of the van and confront him. They order Ray back into the bus, and two of the men join him in there. One of them holds a gun on Ray and the frightened students, and the other gets into the driver's seat of the bus. The third man follows the bus in the white van, and this convoy from hell travels a short distance of about a mile out into the countryside onto kind of a deserted farm road before they pull over into a shallow gulch and a bamboo thicket where the kidnappers then order everyone off the bus at gunpoint. Half of the children are forced into the white van, and the other half, plus the driver, Ed Ray, are forced onto a second van, this one green, that's parked in the secluded bamboo thicket. Both vans have had the side and rear windows blacked out and partitions placed between the driver's seats and the unwilling passengers in the back. And they've reinforced everything back there with plywood so that they can't, like, kick out a window to call for help or escape. And the kidnappers then proceed to drive these terrified kids around for 11 hours before arriving at about 3.30 in the morning to a rock quarry in Livermore, California, about 100 miles away from Chowchilla, where the children were taken. Now, if this already sounds like a real bad time, sorry, guys, it's about to get so much worse. So the kidnappers herd everyone out of the vans, and then they ask for everybody's names, which they write down on a jack-in-the-box bag. And then they, yeah, these guys It's always good to travel with good stationery. Right? So then they have the bus driver stripped down to his shirt and underwear in case he has something in his pants or boots that could be used to help them escape in some way. And I always keep a file in my pants. Right? Hmm. Yeah. And they it hand... helps accentuate things. <laughs> file. Is that a file in your pocket or are you just uh, trying to escape from a kidnapper van? But yeah, so they, they basically, they kind of make sure nobody's got anything that they could use to get out of their predicament. I mean, you're five. What are you going to? Yeah. So Ed Ray, the bus driver, is given a flashlight and then he is marched at gunpoint to a hole in the ground with a ladder descending into it, like a manhole kind of cover type situation. And he's told to climb down and the children soon follow him and they find themselves inside what appears to be a moving van that has been buried into the dirt of the quarry. The sides and the roof of the van are bulging inward due to the weight of the soil and rock around it and dust kind of from the, the dirt around it keeps kind of, drifting in as they're sitting in there. And there are two air shafts into the van that bring in outside air via ventilation fans, which eventually, after a couple of hours, stop working. And, oh, God, this keeps getting like, and there's a couple of holes that have been basically cut into the wheel wells that cover the the rear wheels of the van that Mm -hmm. they could use as toilets. There is a small stack of mattresses on the floor of the moving van and there's a little like supply of food like jugs of water some loaves of wonder bread little peanut butter some cheerios and some bags of potato chips and um i will put up a link to an article that has actual photos of the interior of the van so you can get an idea of like jesus christ just imagine it full of like 26 fucking freaked out kids. And, oh, uh, God. Yeah, it's, it's just a snow bueno. And they were not ever able to pull over. Like during their 11 hour drive around, mm-hmm. they didn't pull over once. They weren't allowed to pee, anything like that. So, yeah, it was not great. So, once everyone's been lowered into their underground jail cell, the kidnappers pull up the ladder and they slide a heavy steel plate into place above the entrance shaft which they then further weigh down with a couple of 100-pound industrial tractor batteries. And Ed Ray and the 26 children from the bus are plunged into stifling darkness with only one flashlight among them and no idea what the kidnappers plan to do next. So, meanwhile, back in Chowchilla, parents have started to get worried. 
Ed Ray is known to be such a punctual and conscientious bus driver that you can pretty much set your watch by his stops. Oh, God. So within two and a half hours of the bus going missing, the sheriff's department has dispatched an aerial recognizance plane to check out the countryside. And this is like, this is a giant sort of like big valley, kind of yeah. wide valley situation. And it's just, it it's farm country as far as you can go so you've got cows farms and just brown Brown uh, yeah Yeah. that's that's what it is out there i grew up in the central valley of california and that sounds like home to me baby yep so on the ground community members are have all set out in cars and trucks to search for the kids and a few hours after the search parties start their looking a police sergeant locates the empty bus but there's no sign of the kids nor any clue about where they might have gone or who might have taken them. It's like they simply vanished off the face of this earth or like, I don't know, were raptured or aliens. Like you say, aliens, aliens. right? Always aliens. Up. Now, the local news media uh, get wind of what's going on and they begin to descend on this town like a swarm of locusts with TV cameras. Yes, At one point, there are 400 reporters on the ground who have driven or flown in from all over the state and country. Uh, There's even a story about a reporter from New York City who flew into Los Angeles and then paid a cab driver to take him to Chowchilla, which is almost 250 miles away. Yeah. Yeah, it took seven hours and it cost the reporter hundreds of dollars, but I guess the scoop was worth it. You know, and as anybody listening to this show absolutely knows, if it bleeds, it leads, right? And sensational stories of missing people, like the van life folks, they sell. They sell papers, they boost TV ratings. If it was happening today, it would generate clicks and likes, right? Mm -hmm. And this is kids. These are imperiled kids. So this is like true crime catnip, right? And it this really was a sensational story. It it really was the largest kidnapping, single kidnapping, taking of people ever to occur in the United States to this time. So for our younger or like not into history obsessed listeners, let me set the scene of like what's going on in the world in California and all over in the 1970s. So I was like a tiny baby when all of this was going down. So I don't have any personal memory of it as it happened, but like the whispers. I was in my previous life at the time. Yes. You were like floating in the clouds maybe you were a beautiful bird a hawk soaring over the central valley not giving a shit about buses or a great white eating some random person that, that off of be. town provincetown that's where i want to go because okay. of that previous life i was like peeing myself and like yeah eating pablum so i don't remember this so like last week <laughs> like last week <laughs> last night uh no but um it, but like the the event like it it definitely the whispers the stories the references the urban legends that kind of grew up around this definitely informed my childhood in the 80s for sure absolutely same same and i was in the central valley so like this was very much a horror story to us growing up oh yeah because this is this is some freaky shit Mm -hmm. and this event was not just a huge story as it was happening i feel like it overall kind of added to this picture of a world that was given over to random large-scale acts of violence on a regular basis. And absolutely, I'm not saying the 70s was specifically particularly violent compared to any other period in history when you like zoom out and kind of look at facts and figures, but I am saying that the large-scale kind of splashy acts of violence like kidnappings and so on, like in Chowchilla, were sort of the style at the time for mayhem. Yeah. It's basically the go big or go home a decade for mayhem and violence. Like, look at the serial killers that came Absolutely. out of it. Richard Ramirez. Yes. I mean, these are yeah. big, big, splashy guys. Yes. And California, in particular, had a real mystique about it in America overall at this time, especially for big, sensational horror stories. Like you say, like Ramirez. I mean, another major kidnapping that captivated the nation had taken place there just two years ago, not quite 150 miles away in Berkeley. And I'm speaking, of course, of the taking of heiress Patty Hearst, who got snatched up and brainwashed by the Symbionese Liberation Army. And who, then one of the members was one of the members of 
Charles Manson's group, Squeaky From, which was yes. another huge story, sensationalized yep, exactly. story. Because just old Charlie Manson and his gang of groovy ghoulies had gone on their murder spree in Los Angeles less than a decade ago. He'd only been in jail for about five years at the time that this went down. Yep. The Zodiac Killer had also murdered at least five people, if not many more, uh, in the San Francisco area about the same time as Manson doing his dirty deeds, and he was still at large. Hell, you, it felt like you could not swing a dead hitchhiker without hitting a serial killer lurking somewhere in the bushes of the Golden State. Oh, speaking of the Golden State, Joseph D'Angelo, the man first known as the Visalia Ransacker, then the Where East I Area Rapist. <laughs> yep. Then the East Area Rapist, and finally the, say it with me, Golden, Golden State, State Killer. killer had just begun his reign of sexual assault terror only a month prior to the Chowchilla kidnapping. So there was some shit in the water. You know, I don't know yep. if it was the leaded gas or what the hell it was, but, like, there was there was definitely a simmering undercurrent of just big-time violence, right? And not just California. All across the world, all kinds of political unrest involving public terrorism and kidnapping was just going on left and right. Groups mm -hmm. like the Red Army Faction in Germany or the Front de Liberation de Quebec were going after politicians and taking hostages and basically just like killing in the name of left and right. So people were absolutely freaking the fuck out about the possibility that these kidnappers were a far left or far right group of terrorists or some kind of satanic cult or a deranged mass murderer or serial killer that just decided that instead of slowly picking off victims, they would go for it in a big, splashy, all-at-once kill. Well, you then know? the Zodiac Killer actually threatened to kill a, a bus full of children, so I, I, this is also all in the public eyes. Oh, huge. yeah. This is like, this is, this is the worst nightmare come true, right? Mm -hmm. And this particular kidnapping, it was so incredibly terrifying and riveting for the people watching and reading about it at home because it's kids, you know? Every parent's worst nightmare, right? Protect the young. It's just kind of hardwired into our brains, our mammal brains. We are absolutely freaked out about child abductions when it's just a single kid lost at a shopping center or, or taken from a park. Um, and then this comes along, and it is such an unprecedentedly unthinkably massive scale and people just lost their shit which i would have done too right yeah was literally nowhere safe for kids and what kind of actual fucking monsters would be able to pull off a stunt like this and the answer to that oh boy that's not what anybody's gonna expect listening to this but i'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here before I tell you who committed this absolutely heinous crime and why, let me first tell you what happened next to those 26 kids and one adult entombed in the rock quarry in Livermore. Because I bet, I bet you're nervous. I bet you're like, oh, God. So let me, let me, let me get you through this. I'm, so, I am chattering a little bit over here. Like, I feel my anxiety rising. I, it might be because I, I keep on thinking about being stuck in a van or a truck or a anything underneath the earth yeah this is this is a lot of primal like, fear yeah this is like the horror story from my childhood so ed ray the bus driver he's a rancher when he's not driving the school bus he's about 55 years old at the time of this kidnapping and he's still very fit he's stocky and strong as the proverbial ox from all those years of working in the fields and bucking hay you know so he's he's a fit guy and he's a humble low-key fella who is known for being just quiet and reliable. He's a real kind of backbone guy. And he loves these kids that are on his bus, and they love him right back. This is the guy that if your kids are going to be stuck in a buried moving van 12 feet underground in a fucking rock quarry in the middle of California, you want them to be stuck there with this guy, right? Yeah. So Ed Ray and a couple of the older kids, 10-year-old Robert Gonzalez and 14-year-old Mike Marshall, stack these mattresses that they've left uh, the kidnappers have left on the floor of the moving van up as high as they can get them to go underneath that top hatch through which they'd all been lowered into the van. And the three of them then took turns pushing and shoving at the hatch to try to shift off the heavy metal plate and the weights on top of it. 
And Ed Ray would lay on his back and kind of kick up with his legs. And the boys would then use wooden slats that they pried out of the mattresses to kind of use as like levers and kind of bars to get that hatch pried up. And they were like, we're not dying down here. You know, they could Mm -hmm. feel those walls creaking and kind of starting to feel like they were going to collapse. Well, also the ventilation system went out. And air was getting in, but like in a trickle. It was, it was very, very, very unpleasant in there. And they're all sweating like pigs because, again, as you said, ventilation is out. And they are pouring some water from those jugs that have been left by the kidnappers onto their bodies just to keep from passing out from the heat while they're trying to kick and push this this, uh, manhole up. And after hours of just shoving away at the plate, suddenly it shifts just enough for this thin strip of starlight to show at a crack near the side. Oh, wow. And 16 hours after being entombed in this truck, Ed Ray and the two older boys finally succeed at opening the hatch and the children are able to escape. So Ed Ray goes up first, cautiously, fearing that the kidnappers might have left a guard at the site with a gun, but they're all alone. There's no sign of anybody. So he gets all the kids out out of the van that's been buried. And at around 8 p.m. on July 16th, the group of exhausted, traumatized children and their chaperone file out down a dirt road to the guard shack of the quarry where an employee who had stayed late to finish a welding job spots them and hits the alarm button, thinking that there's like a group of trespassers or something, you know? A roving band of angry little people? Uh, yeah, I guess. Like the 26 dwarves and Snow White are coming to get him. I don't know. but By the Ray... way, worst overtime shift ever. Right. I think I would be like, what? I need to go home now. Yes. <laughs> I need drama pay for this. So Ed Ray runs forward to meet the man calling out, we're the ones from Chowchilla. And the guard uh, gave Ed Ray, who, remember, is shoeless and in his underwear, a pair of work coveralls and a Pepsi. And he he immediately calls the local authorities. Do you think that was like product placement? A Pepsi? Pepsi Pepsi? was like, yeah, Pepsi was like, here, we'll give you this much money if you say that the first thing you did was get pants and a Pepsi. Maybe. Uh, Pepsi, it adds life and coveralls. But yeah, so he immediately calls the local police and a Greyhound bus arrives at the quarry to escort the kids and Ed Ray to the Santa Rosa Correctional Institution, which was kind of the largest place nearby that they could get them to quickly. And they were given... That's interesting. Your children have been kidnapped and are in danger. We're now going to take them to prison. I mean, uh, maybe that speaks to the Central Valley. Uh, what's you there? You know, you're uh, not wrong. Yeah. You are not wrong yeah. in that statement. Yeah. Please continue. <laughs> so they're taken to the, the correctional institution and they're given food. They're given clothes. They're checked out for any injuries or any medical needs that they need. They might have. And then uh, the Greyhound bus takes them home to Chowchilla where they are greeted by an enormous crowd of townsfolk, family members, law enforcement, and reporters at 4 a.m., about 36 hours after it had begun, their ideal ordeal was finally over. Wow. Or at least the active, acute part of it was. The children, Ed Ray, the whole town of Chowchilla would never really be the same after what they'd experienced. And the kidnappers were still unidentified and very much at large. Nobody was going to sleep soundly until they were in custody. During all this time, no note, no phone call, no communication at all had come in from the kidnappers. Who the hell were they? And why the hell had they done this? What was their ultimate plan? anyone knew, these guys really just wanted to kidnap and and kill slowly a a bus full of kids. Yeah, nobody had any idea what the hell was happening. Nobody knew, were they going to strike again? Where? What was going to, you know, were they going to come back? They did not know. Uh, All of of California was on high alert. You know, what was going on? So, okay. Who were these diabolical masterminds who had managed to pull off the largest kidnapping in American history? (laughs) Masterminds. (laughs) Well, prepare a soft landing for your jaw, as I tell you. First of all, they were not a crack team of mercenaries, nor a cadre of political activists 
willing to kill or die for their ideals of liberation. They weren't Satanists or cult members of any kind. Not even Amway sellers. They weren't sexual sadists or pedophiles or serial killers who got off on inflicting maximum terror to their victims. They were three rich white kid douchebags in their early 20s from Portola Valley, one of the wealthiest suburbs in America. And they did all of this because they wanted to buy cars. Yeah. Yeah, cars. They wanted to buy cars. 26 kids and one really good man were traumatized for life and nearly suffocated in an underground trailer because these fucking assholes wanted to buy fancy cars. Yeah. Christ, do I hate people sometimes. Yep. Yeah. So here's the story behind three of the dumbest goddamn criminals of all time. Frederick Newhall Woods IV indeed comes from a family exactly as rich as you would think someone with a name like Frederick Newhall Woods IV would. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. He is the scion of the Newhall Land and Farming Company, which his great-great-grandpa, Henry Mayo Newhall, founded in the 1850s. So First by off, the... if you have to start off a sentence with, this person is a scion of anything, just... Right? They're one of Unless those kind of people. This person owns a scion, like, that's a whole different <laughs> class of people, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so by the time of the kidnapping, Fred's family was bringing in $80 million a year, which in now in the year of our Lord 2021 would be the equivalent of about $380 million. So yeah. Fred's Jesus fa- inflation. Right, yeah, right? So yeah, Fred's family is not hurting for cash. This isn't like a desperate young man trying to survive, right? Fred, okay, so he's 24 and not exactly a shining star of excellence when it came to his financial prospects. He had been a lazy student who did poorly in school, but old Fred IV fancied himself a budding entrepreneur. So after high school, he starts a nominal business buying, selling, and refurbishing old cars, which he stores on his family's many-acre estate. And his partner in this endeavor of car flippage is his old school buddy, Jim Schoenfeld, who is the son of a well-to-do local podiatrist. And Jim and his younger brother, Rick, spend a lot of their time just kind of hanging out with Fred, putzing around with cars and shooting the shit. Fred IV also hatches another side business with a different buddy, a filmmaking major at San Jose State named David Boston. Now, David Boston does not have anything to do with this kidnapping, but he does kind of come into play later. So Fred reckons he can flip these cars and then fund David's movie ideas and set himself up as a producer and, like, live the Hollywood dream, okay? So, yeah. These guys are just such assholes. Oh, so, so much so. So given that he's buying and flipping old cars, he is not exactly making mad bank at this endeavor with any degree of speed and decides that what he really needs is some cold, hard cash in which to invest in the kind of super flashy car that the wealthy young punks of this posh suburb are keen to buy. Like Porsches, Ferraris, Lamborghinis, things like that, right? Right. And he can't go to ask his parents for the kind of loan he would need to get these fancy vehicles because, frankly, he's already deep in debt to them just from buying the schlubby used cars that he has and being an absolute shit business person at selling them for a profit. So, what is an enterprising young future automotive and Hollywood mogul to do? Kidnapping and extortion, right? Of course. That is always the answer. The go-to answer is kidnapping and extortion. Right? So, Fred Newhall Woods IV, super genius, had seen the 1971 cop thriller movie Dirty Harry, starring everyone's favorite guy who berates chairs for the Republican National Convention, Clint Eastwood. (laughs) And in the movie, the bad guy, Scorpio, hijacks a school bus and holds a boy at gunpoint in a dramatic standoff at a rock quarry with Dirty Harry Callahan himself. I do want to go on record here and say any idea that you have that starts with a movie with a guy whose name is Scorpio. Don't do it. Don't do it. No. Just maybe rethink. (sighs) Yeah. So... 
This gives Fred IV the idea to swipe an entire bus full of students and hold them all for ransom, figuring that the more kids they have to bargain for, the more money they'll be able to extort from the government, to the tune of, they were hoping, $5 million. And then further, he can turn this idea into a film script and make double the cash with a hit film based on the true-life story that he's about to perpetrate. It's a twofer. A horrifying, sociopathic twofer. I mean, come on. Kids love being buried alive in a van. They'll have a great field trip in a van, buried 12 feet underground, making memories. Kids love it. They love it. Yeah. So Fred hatches this absolutely apeshit plan and becomes the leader of what I start to refer to as Oceans 3. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, this is, oh, so uh, he he gets James Schoenfeld, his partner in car flipping, uh, involved in this dumbass scheme. And James is doing the majority of the actual concrete plotting and planning and scheming. Fred's Why? Like, Fred's- did he, how did he know? Hey, you know what? You're a guy. You're a guy can come to and you will take this plan and run with it. Well, like, how do you know that about somebody? I can tell you what his credentials were. He really liked to write in notebooks and he had a coded diary. So Fred the fourth is like, ah, oh, James is, he's a thinker. He's a knower and a doer. So, and there are, they found these extensive notebooks that had had all these insane plans in it. And just reading into a little bit of what was actually in there, it's just, it's exactly the dumbass bullshit that a couple of dipshit kids who are like 22 and have never had to like do anything would think of. Like it's, wow. It, yeah, it's, yeah, ha ha. It's wow. Uh, and then James's little brother, Rick, he sort of just kind of comes along for the ride because, you know, why not? What else does he have to do with his time? I mean, hey, Regina, I don't have anything better to do next week. You want to go kidnap some kids, bury them in a Dodge Dart in my backyard and traumatize them for life so we can afford to really go big in the podcast and get a, like, fancy mixing board? I'm going to Portland next week. Oh, damn. All right. Well, I'll take a rain check on that. I'll start digging the hole for the Dodge Dart. You yeah. do that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, boy. So James, like I said, was very heavily into writing and notebooks. And once those were recovered by law enforcement, they were able to see all the meticulous but absolutely dipshit crazy planning that went into this plot by three sheltered rich boys barely out of their teens. Danny Ocean, these boys were not. So, yeah, initially they decide they need infrared scopes to see at night. They need it. This, this sounds so much like some people I knew, guys. I knew in the valley that yeah. was that sheltered kind of rich boy. Yeah. Oh, my God. Like, I'm seeing a couple of them in my head as yeah. you were talking about this. Ah, yep. Sorry. Yep. Please continue. No, no. I, I think we all have met uh, met these, uh, these three dipshits. And luckily, none of our dipshits had the wherewithal to actually carry out any of their schemes. Because it would have gone just like this. They also... We don't have our own personal Oceans 3 because they lacked the motivation. And the money. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So, they also decide they might need an x-ray truck with gas masks and lead vests because I don't know. Then they're thinking they need to get a plane. And what they can do is they can have Fred fake hijack it. Uh, and it'll be loaded with dummies strapped into parachutes to, like, fake out their pursuers. I mean, it just it just goes on and on. And it gets weirder and stupider and weirder. And um, I'm honestly, I have to say I'm kind of, I don't know, impressed, I guess, surprised. By how they, stupid someone could be? Well, but that they managed to get as far along on this cockamaming kidnapping plot as they did. You know, like, Wow. And they do manage to purchase several used panel vans and the moving van, which, you know, they used in the, the actual kidnapping. And they did, in fact, manage to bury this van in this quarry that Fred's father conveniently happened to own. They also bought an x-ray machine with the intention of checking their ransom money for any kind of, like, bug or tracking device. And they made homemade bulletproof vests. All of them own a shit ton of guns to Ray, so the weaponry, they've got that covered. 
And Fred has a passport made out in the fake name of Ralph Snyder, and he rents a trailer in Reno as the safe house where they're going to go after they pick up the ransom money, which they intend to have dropped to them in the Santa Cruz Mountains by airplanes using a series of lights as a signal. The trouble is, though, the kidnap portion of the plot kind of went according to plan, but actually asking for ransom sure as hell didn't. So I mentioned earlier that no ransom note or phone call was ever received by anybody in connection with the kidnapping by the time that the children were recovered. And that's because the phone lines to the Chowchilla Police Department were so clogged with people calling during the 16 hours that the kids were actually in captivity that the kidnappers were never able to actually get through. Wow. Yep. And they'd gone home to get some sleep after securing their prisoners. And by the time they woke up and got ready to try calling again, the kids and Ed Ray had rescued themselves. And this amazing feat was all over the news. So again, these are dumb criminals. D-U-M-B dumb. Epic dumb. I mean, they could have walked away at that point. Well, dumb, dumber, and dumberest kind of couldn't. Because, of course, they had been seen by the workmen at the quarry digging their big, weird moving van grave. Oh, my and, God. Yeah. And immediately, Fred Newhall Woods IV becomes the number one suspect in the case. I mean, you know, you don't have to be fucking Columbo to work this shit out, right? Yeah, true. And Fred and his two dipshit henchmen all already had police records, having been convicted of Grand Theft Auto, two years earlier, and because they're rich white kids, they were left off with a fine and probation. I mean, it's not like they were selling loose cigarettes or anything truly nefarious, right? So, yeah. So the police get a warrant, and they search the estate of Fred's family and discover one of the guns used in the kidnapping, as well as a draft of a ransom note. But by the time they got there, the three dipshit amigos are in the wind. So they meet up at a warehouse where they stashed the vans that they had used to spirit the kids away to the quarry, and they made plans for what to do next. James and Fred took off to the rented safe house trailer in Reno, but Rick, feeling both guilty and like he was just not cut out for a life on the lamb, returned home and confessed to his father what they'd been up to. Rick Schoenfeld, accompanied by his father and a very expensive lawyer, turned himself into the police station in Oakland eight days after heading out to Chowchilla to do something extremely foolish and cruel. Meanwhile, Fred and James are in Reno at the safe house and decide to part ways and head separately up to Canada where they'll rendezvous. Fred uses his phony passport to fly to Vancouver, B.C. and holds up in a seedy motel. James, who's freaking out by this point, decides he's going to drive to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, because it's close to a border crossing. But when he tries to break on through to the other side, he's turned away because, A, he's acting like a chimp on PCP. He's so freaked out. (laughs) And his car is chock full of guns. (laughs) Oh, God. Well done, Canadian border guards of 1976. You can spot a bad guy. So James returns to Coeur d'Alene and then decides he's going to drive to Spokane to sell his guns there at a sporting goods store and then make another attempt to flee to Canada via the Cascade Crossing. And this also fails spectacularly because, again, chimp on PCP, and he forgot there were two pistols in the center console and two rifles in the trunk of his Chrysler because... You know, they're real easy to overlook, I guess. So many guns, he forgot about four guns. Uh, yep, pretty much. So he goes back again to Curtilane and finally just decides, fuck, I can't do this. And he needs to go home to his family to turn himself in. But he does end up being pulled over on the way back and taken into custody. I can't do this. I'm too much of an idiot for a life of crime. Right? I'm too dumb to crime. So Fred, (laughs) meanwhile, Fred the Fourth, is holed up in a no-tell motel in Vancouver, B.C., and he's pretty much hanging out in his room or in the lobby, like, watching bad TV and writing letters to people back home. 
and he sends one to his buddy David, with whom he'd planned to become a big-time Hollywood producer, suggesting that David start work immediately on a screenplay about his exploits as it would make a great movie of the week. Although he did, he gave him some notes. He felt that the ending was not so exciting and could use a few killings to really punch it up. What the fuck? (laughs) And he also told David that he wanted a percentage of the profits that would surely result from this film because, after all, fair is fair, right? Yeah, and this correspondence becomes Fred the Fourth's downfall because all the people he's been writing to, David included, have turned their letters over to the police, who now know that Fred is residing in BC under the alias of Ralph Snyder. So the RCMP, the fucking Mounties, stake out the main post office in Vancouver, where the postmark on Fred's letters was sent from, and eventually he turns up to check to see if anybody's mailed him back, and they pounce and take his breathtakingly stupid ass into custody. So wow. the, Yeah. So the three kidnappers eventually plead guilty to 27 counts of kidnapping for ransom without inflicting bodily injury in exchange for the prosecution dropping 18 counts of armed robbery against them. Jesus. They plead not guilty to five counts of kidnapping with bodily harm to try to beat the mandatory life sentence without parole that comes with that conviction, and the case goes to trial. And it's not its not a trial by jury, it's a judge trial. Yeah. So Superior Court Judge Leo Deegan found all three guilty on all counts as the children's testimony was so hard to hear as they spoke of their abject terror during the ordeal and of their continued inability to return to a feeling of safety and normalcy months afterwards. The judge felt that the terror the kids endured constituted bodily harm, and the three kidnappers were sentenced to life without parole. Now, that sentence was eventually overturned thanks to appeal and them having some very high-priced lawyers on their side, and both of the Schoenfeld brothers were paroled within the last decade. Fred, however, remains in prison. He has married three times while in jail. What? Yeah, you know, I guess, uh, you know, there's no accounting for love or I don't know. And this is perhaps because he inherited a trust fund rumored to be worth around $100 million. Ah, Yeah, yeah, that buys a lot of commissary ramen in prison. And it also allowed him to buy a mansion a half hour's drive away from the prison, where presumably his various wives have lived so they can easily visit him conjugally, right? And he has also consistently been in trouble for doing shit like possessing contraband porn and cell phones, and for running several businesses on the outside, including a gold mine and a car dealership, without informing the prison authorities. (sighs) Yeah, and he was denied parole yet again in 2019 for the 19th time, and he's not up again for parole until 2024. Fred IV continues to be a sociopathic piece of fucking work. And as to Ed Ray and the kids... They tried as much as possible to go back to normal lives despite the intense public interest in the case and in them. People love true crime and sensation as much 45 years ago as they do today. And indeed, a TV movie of the week was made about the case in 1993 called They've Taken Our Children, The Chow Chilla Kidnapping, and later renamed Vanished Without a Trace. It is apparently streaming on Tubi, and I am sorry I could not bring myself to watch it even in the service of this podcast. I'd like to say that that's because I wanted to remain uninfluenced by fiction while researching fact, but frankly, it's because, no, I'm not going to watch that. That looks terrible. Sorry, Carl Malden, I can't do it. I did, however, listen to the Robert Goulet disco song, The Ballad of Chow Chilla Ray, and wow, 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 wow. It's, uh, It's something. It's just as bad as you would expect a disco song by Robert Goulet about Chowchilla to be. Maybe even worse. I don't know. The 1970s were a hell of a drug. And that, (laughs) folks, is my story. (laughs) 
Well, thank you for that. It was absolutely fucking horrible. Mm-hmm. Not not your story, but the story itself. Yeah, so it's... thank you for sharing that. Yeah, that was. I just kept. I, it was making me really anxious. And I have to give a shout out. So there's a lot of a lot of stuff online that you can read about it. But I I was inspired to write about this reading an article in Vox by a writer named Caleb Horton, Caleb with a K that is just absolutely fantastic. And it's called Nobody's Gonna Talk, The Ballad of the Chowchilla Bus Kidnapping. And it is really, it's a riveting, just beautifully, really lyrically written story about the kidnapping, about the town, just about kind of all of it. That it's just, it's it's phenomenally well-written and just really gripping. And I totally recommend checking it out online. Um, could not have written this without without this wonderful piece of inspiration and of uh, research by Caleb Horton. So shout out, big props to, to that writer. He's, he's pretty great. Nice, nice. Well, thank you for that. And uh, I guess we'll wrap it up with a remember to take care of each other. And uh, you might be alone, or just you might be alone. I'm alone. I'm alone. <laughs> I'm so, so alone. alone. And you might be disturbed. But you're not buried in a rock quarry by three of the stupidest criminals ever in the middle of the Central Valley. Thank God. Or alone. Alone. Thanks for listening, friends. Please remember to like, subscribe, and tell a friend. And check us out on social media. On Facebook, we are the Disturbing Interest Podcast. Twitter, podcast underscore DI. Instagram, DI Podcast. Or if you really want to send us something, you can send it to our P.O. Box at 70515 Seattle, Washington, 98127.